Jeff, we're on the air in 60. Is the keeper with you? Well, if he is, he's awfully quiet. Keeper? Keeper, are you here? Keeper? Yes, Jeff, I'm here. I'm uh, just finishing up with something that required my full attention. Your full attention? <laughs> I can't even imagine what might require your full attention or uh, what that's like for you. Hmm. Your comment makes me believe that you want me to tell you something. All I'm prepared to say is I'm directing at least some of my attention to you, and I'm ready to begin. Great deflection, by the way. And hey, welcome back. It's good to be back, Jeff, however mystifying that concept is. I know, I know. It's, it's, uh, it's one of those human limitations, right? Only being in one place at a time, even though we're always multitasking. Ooh, that's amusing. Really? Why? Well, because even though you call it that, it isn't really that at all. Most humans aren't capable of multitasking. Hmm, why is that? I mean, I know some great multitaskers. Here we go. Hold that thought, Keeper. Stand by, everybody. And cueing music in three, two, and one. Welcome to Voice of Evolution Radio. Conversations that awaken, inspire, and activate. With tonight's host, Jeff Hendler. Hi, everyone. I'm Jeff Hendler. Welcome to Voice of Evolution Radio. Today's program is called In the Soul's Waiting Room, and it's actually part six in a series of programs that I was invited to host by my rather unusual guest. He's known as the Keeper of Soul's Purpose. And who is that, you may ask? What I can say about that is that the Keeper's role is to make sure that every soul coming to the human realm has its purpose. Now, you can say anything you like about whether or not you believe this is real, and some of you have. What feels most important to those of us at Voice of Evolution Radio, though, is that these programs are a window to our souls and what it means to be human in these uncertain times. That's really all we can hope to do. Also, you've been great at sending in questions and comments, so please keep them coming. Our producer, Linda, and I will get to as many of them as we can. By the way, if you've missed any of the past programs, they're available on demand at www.thevoiceofevolution.com, and that's on our radio program page. We also invite you to like us on Facebook at Voice of Evolution Radio and on Twitter at Voice of Ev Radio. Now let's bring them on. Keeper. Hello, Jeff. So just before we went on the air, there was a quick mention of multitasking. You said the humans aren't able to multitask. I got to say, I don't know, Keeper. Many of us think we spend most of our time doing just that. We need to make a distinction between multitasking and task selecting, I think. What you're probably acknowledging is an ability to switch from one task to another quickly. Humans task select rather than multitask. Your frontal lobes are capable of sorting and choosing so very quickly, it seems like you're doing more than one thing at a time when you're actually really not. It's quite different for souls, of course, who are capable of being energetically in many places at the same time. Although about 2% of humans can actually multitask, and it's actually quite evolutionary to be a true multitasker. Somehow I knew you were going to say that, Keeper. Well, it's not about being better than or lesser than, as you know. If you all gave your brain some attention restoration, you'd be surprised at the radically different thoughts and ideas you might have. Tension restoration. I like it. Yes, you know, like taking a walk in the natural world. Something like that's especially restorative, Jeff. I hear you. And speaking of attention, I was thinking the other day just how many topics we've covered so far, Keeper, and all through the three lenses. And to recap those lenses, it's the human-soul connection, the environment, and evolution. And, you know, humanity has been reacting to our conversations. We're getting more and more questions and comments every day. I know you've already got something in mind today, and maybe we could just start with a few of the listeners' emails. I like responding to questions from humanity, and I also want to talk about messengers today. Specifically, I want to talk about gender identity and preference. Yes, I thought so, and you've alluded to messengers in nearly every program we've aired, so I'm eager to get to it as well. I thought it might be interesting to share a question. 
Well, it's a comment, really, from a skeptical listener, since all voices are welcome here. I'd like to get your perspective on it, Keeper. This listener wrote in saying that this was, uh, well, he says it's really all liberal bullshit, and it changed nothing for him. How would you respond to that? Well, I would say for that listener, it really is liberal bullshit, and it changes nothing. <laughs> I don't know why I expected a different answer. So what's the message in that? I, I see it as this is all about what we choose to believe or disbelieve. It's always about choice, Jeff, and the stories we tell ourselves about our choices. It doesn't matter what I say. If your listener thinks it is, then it is, because that's his story, and anything that threatens his story is bound to be wrong, or evil, <laughs> or liberal bullshit, I suppose. And at the same time, that really keeps me safe from having to consider something outside my story, doesn't it? Keeper, is there more to say about that, uh, about story? Oh, there's always more to say about story. We've activated this listener because we challenge his beliefs and truths, which often become part of a human's identity. And if that identity is threatened, then that creates a reaction, just like this listener had. What I'd like to add is that each human is exactly where he or she is supposed to be. It's part of your sacred contracts and soul's journey, so you must expect a diversity of beliefs and truths. It's the human ego that adds judgment where none's required. And that's the hard part, isn't it? No judgment. Oh, yes. It seems innocent enough, Keeper, to say we're all where we're supposed to be. But what happens when that judgment becomes marginalization? What happens when the difference in our stories creates suspicion and hate and even violence? We've talked about separateness in one of our last conversations. It seems clear that we still haven't learned how to navigate our diversity. And why do you think that's happening, Jeff? That's a great question. And I'm probably going to sound like you if I attempt to answer it. So uh, here we go. I suspect it is something to do with all those variables you always talk about. The coding that each soul brings to human life. You've also used the imagery that a human life is like a room full of spider webs. That getting to the other side isn't so easy. You know, that really resonated with me because we've all walked into a spider web or two. So I'm guessing that all that makes up the answer to your question. Well, now you see my dilemma when you ask such pointed questions. Of course, some things are meant to be a mystery, even with all the information available to you humans. Now, from the perspective of the first lens, the shift in the type of souls traveling to the human realm and coupled with the second lens, what's happening in the environment, this can easily escalate the degree of separateness in humanity, or it could bring humans closer together. And this is the part I don't get, Keeper. Why escalate the separateness? Well, as I pointed out in our last conversation, one of the many reasons might be that you need to see the polarities in order to be able to work out the separateness. That feels like a great lead into our conversation today about messengers. <laughs> Nothing's going to be wasted here, Jeff. <laughs> I know, I can get a bit impatient sometimes. Well, let me point out that impatience is one of the soul's codings. Souls that incarnate with impatience in their coding can either find this is a bit tedious if they lean towards the shadow of impatience, or they're quite eager to jump right in because they're craving the new information. Now, that's the lighter side, and that's what I'm feeling from you. An eagerness to learn more, is that right? Yes, that's it exactly. Knowing our listeners are probably eager too. And there are always more layers, Jeff, so it's kind of tempting to digress. Perhaps I should adopt your eagerness and ask you to share another question. I suspect it will actually bring us to our topic for today. Great idea. And well, knowing what you want to talk about, here's one that I am eager to ask. And by the way, I'm glad I turned out on the light side of impatience. So Keeper, a listener wrote in asking this. I'm part of the LGBTQ community and saddened by the bigotry and violence against us, and not only from strangers. There are a lot of us kids on the street because our families rejected us. The world is such a, and there are a few expletives here, phobic place. I'm wondering if there will ever be an understanding that we are all people who just want to live our lives. 
What about that one, Keeper? I mean, it seems we're in the middle of a gender revolution, especially among young people. What can you say about that? I would call it more of a gender evolution. And this is where the sadness in a human life must be honored and respected in the same way that we honor the soul of this human and the others who are also messengers. In the past, I spoke of the soul's waiting room and how when a soul chooses a heroic journey into the human realm, every soul gathers to honor that soul. And we're coming back to that conversation about the soul's waiting room in order for me to answer your listener's question. And if I may, for those of us who haven't listened to past conversations, the soul's waiting room is a term that we're using here on the air to describe a space in which a soul chooses its purpose before coming to the human realm. When souls honor another soul's purpose, it's because the human life is going to be filled with challenges in some way. Did I capture that correctly? Well, as simply as any human can, yes, Jeff. I want to caution you that this conversation has many environmental, spiritual, and evolutionary facets, and there's lots of opportunity coming up for human judgment. I kind of figured it would. The topic of sensual identity and preference is actually very complex, and it's intensely personal from a human's perspective. Now, you always challenge me about making humanity sound like a device for the soul's purpose, and I'm about to do it again. Great. Thanks for the warning. I must stress, though, that my only purpose is to awaken humanity to new perspectives about why things are the way they are. This is really a much more compassionate and balanced world than the stories you continue to tell. It's about purpose and choice, even if those choices are masked in all the variables that come with a human life. Even saying that, I realize that some of the listeners will hear the message and do nothing, and some will hear the message and say it's sacrilege. But I hope there are at least some who will hear it and know it's exactly what they've been feeling all along. So, let's keep all this in mind as I talk about the environmental, evolutionary, and spiritual relationships of what you call the LGBTQ community. What do you call them, Keeper? We call them humans. And that's a great place to start. So, whenever you're ready, Keeper. So, I want to start with that word community. I know the listener who asked the question used the word community, and we can continue to use the word, calling these humans a community. And even then, that's going to create some judgment, isn't it? There's such a richness to humanity. These humans define themselves as a community in order to create an identity and be recognized, and I understand that. But there's incredible diversity even within that community, isn't there? Yes, it's pretty clear to me that we could do a program about each identity within the community, lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender, or even those questioning. That's not what we're here to do, I suspect, and it really does express the diversity and individuality of a certain population of us. So, let's agree to use the word community in all its likeness. As you know, every word has a light and a shadow side, and community is no exception. I hear belonging, and at the same time, I hear separateness. So if we continue to use this word, I want listeners to know that it can hold both of those meanings simultaneously. Noted. And I'm going to add that what I'm hearing is, even within the light side of the word community, we need to see the diversity of our, of our humans and not lump everyone into one narrow category. At the same time, we need inclusion so we don't separate anyone from the rest of humanity. Is that on target? Yes, that's perfectly on target. Thank you, Jeff. Diverse and individual and inclusive, although also exclusive, Jeff, at the same time. That's a mouthful, Keeper. Well, you humans are facets that reflect everything around you. Even if we can see humans as a whole species, we still have to remember that diversity is always part of being human. Anything else you want to say before we begin? I think we've presented a reasonable disclaimer. Yes, there's more I'd like to say here. I have no idea what it is like to be a human who has gender or sexual orientation, even though I've chosen a masculine voice to speak with you. I certainly have no idea what it's like to have an identity that differs from the majority of those around me. 
except since I've connected with a human, that's you of course, Jeff, what others label as better than or worse than, right or wrong or anything in between, well, that just doesn't exist for me. That marginalization you spoke of, well, there's nothing I can tell you about that from personal experience. And this is very important to say because I've never been marginalized or judged. Well, except by the listener who thinks this is all liberal bullshit, of course. <laughs> <laughs> anything else, Keeper? Just that I don't have a human ego that causes me to judge myself or feel better or worse about myself, even with the weight of this third dimensional voice. That has to be made clear also, because when we speak about what we don't know, we can only speak from our own perspective or story. So I'm going to speak about this topic through the three lenses with only the certainty that I can have. You do understand that, right? Understood and very much appreciated. I think our disclaimers are complete. So... There are messengers among you, Jeff. Humans, like the one who asks this question, they are all messengers. Any soul who incarnates as a human and presents an identity other than the old binary gender story, that soul has incarnated with the purpose of bringing new meaning about love and intimacy, to disrupt the old stories, if you will, stories that insist on polarity, feminine or masculine, rather than a spectrum of all that exists between the two. And so much of what we talk about seems to be about just that, acknowledging the polarities and finding the spectrum. Now, if you recall, we talked about a soul's chief feature or obstacle, something that the human will repeatedly be faced with, and the soul is here to overcome in this incarnation. Souls with this purpose of challenging the old binary story may struggle when conforming to what society expects as part of their obstacle. For some souls, their obstacle is something completely different. They are able to express themselves at a very young human age or to express themselves boldly when it comes to gender identification and sexual preference. So is that why we hear so many more children speaking out about gender identity today? Yes, exactly. Now, science and society has always been complicit in maintaining the binary story. Male humans in particular have been taught to devalue feminine behavior because of the current story about what it means to be a male it requires them to do so. Often, this is because not conforming subjects them to human judgment, to ridicule and bullying, or even rejection by their parents, as the second listener pointed out in her question. Those humans who virtuously uphold the binary story consider any other story a perversion, when it's really actually quite natural. And we have talked about how our parents' approval plays big time into our survival and safety and our belonging when we're children. So is there a shift happening there as well? Oh yes, for both children and their parents, there is a real shift happening. Many parents see their human children for who they really are, and they're able to create space for them to be unique individuals. I think that takes a lot of courage too, Keeper, for a parent to acknowledge their child's gender identity preference. Human stories are beginning to change. Parents don't own their children, they're stewards of these young humans whose souls are often more advanced than their own. You know, there's been a lot in the news recently about gender identification and preference. I was reading the recent National Geographic issue on the gender revolution, for example. You know, it said virtually the same thing, that we're taught the appropriate norms of whatever gender we look like. But then in a TV documentary that came out around the same time, I was shocked to learn that often it's the doctors who are assessing the human form of a newborn. And they're deciding, along with the parents, whether that child will be male or female. And it's not a small number of newborns that get assessed and altered to fit a gender norm, let's say. The result of that archaic binary story, Jeff, I'm afraid. I appreciate the resources you brought into the conversation, and I'm going to offer that it's not how we'll spend the time today, however. 
I want to acknowledge their efforts. It may help the young people who are struggling to have any kind of acknowledgement, and that's always a good thing. Yet how I want to approach this conversation today is from the perspective of the three lenses, the story of the relationship between everything. And I expect this will be a very different story. Oh, you can count on it. And yet it's part of all of those other stories, not better than. I just caution you that the first lens may create the same uproar as those other two sources, Jeff. And maybe, I hope for just that. Well, we are here to awaken, inspire, and activate, Keeper. Ah, yes, thank you. It's a good reminder as we proceed. Now, recently, and by that I mean in the last few hundred human years, humans defining and often defying gender through a physical form has become more commonplace. Humans are born with clarity about their gender identity, and challenging that isn't new. It's always existed in humans. And the indigenous people of North America recognize five genders. That is, before invading religions imposed their own stories, of course. They saw the spectrum rather than the polarity. Exactly. And they were revered because it meant this human could see the world through the eyes of more than one gender. A gift from the infinite, if you will. And we think of ourselves as so progressive. I mean, Keeper, we could use some of that thinking today. You'd benefit from opening your minds and hearts to the spectrum of life, Jeff, that's for sure. And the spectrum exists in all species. There's even gender fluidity in the natural world, changing gender based on the need in the second lens, in fish and snakes, some insects, even some mammals. The difference for humans is that there's a rapid advance in evolution happening right now. Why is it happening now? It starts with the first lens, the human-soul connection. So then let me start with a question about the first lens. Do souls have a gender? For example, you mentioned earlier that you chose a masculine voice to speak with us. What a provocative and timely question. Souls contain the energy of what you call masculine and feminine. When it comes to incarnating as a human, there are souls that typically choose masculine forms, just as there are souls that typically choose feminine forms. And then there are those who have no preference or choose in defiance of gender. There is a learning that takes place as a result of every choice. It's always about the purpose of the soul and the experience of why that soul has incarnated. And your choice of voice in this conversation, I sense there's more to say about that. Well, I chose what I thought might be universally more appealing to humans, since the message itself may not always be that way. I see. So the Sir David Attenborough, Brian Blessed, Stephen Fry voice thing you've got going on here deserves a note to self to do some research on the psychology of voice. (laughs) You like using a human voice, don't you? Well, it has its moments, Jeff. It has its moments. So, to summarize all this, as you often do, Jeff, souls are not limited by gender, and in their many incarnations, a soul may choose a gender or leave it up to the genetic chemistry that's already in play in the human parent. Now, having said that, some of the goals that we've attributed to souls are naturally more masculine or feminine. Sometimes it makes the soul's incarnation easier when the corresponding gender is chosen, and choosing the opposite gender, that makes it more challenging. And like any other words in the human realm, masculine and feminine also have their light and shadow sides, so please remember that. Does the soul's age have anything to do with his choice? Now, there's another interesting question. You're on fire today, Jeff, aren't you? <laughs> Let's start with the simplest approach, if there is such a thing. Age does play a role in choice. Mature and old souls have usually mastered the ability to blend these two gender energies. After all, they've had the most incarnations. So the most practice. Yes, and as a result, masculine and feminine identity is much less important to those souls, as are the labels that you humans give them. What you call bisexuality, for example, is very common among old souls, whether or not it's acted upon by the human. So, for mature and old souls, the binary story is less important. Not the elderly, to be clear. The old souls. Yes, 
They're beyond the sourcing that you humans created about types of love. In fact, it's often the purpose of these old souls to lead by example and shake things up. Although I'm struck by a bit of unsettling energy as I say that. What's that? There's an obstacle that these souls face. These souls often seek a perfect love because they know it's possible. And yet they know they may never find it as a human. And that's very painful even to me as I say it, Jeff. I don't know how you manage all these feelings, although I know it's part of it all. Yeah, there's certainly that, Keeper. We're always looking for love. And often we come up wanting no matter which side of that search we're on. What about the other ages of souls? How do they play into all of this? Well, for them, the integration of love and sex is often a challenge. The two are easily confused, or they're unable to connect to the spiritual intimacy of it all. The challenges at every soul age and level play out in the human's gender identification and sexual preference, which is why there's such a variety of values in humans about love and sexuality. I suppose I should add that the first lens includes souls who incarnate with some memory of past lives. And maybe this is a good time to talk about that, since memory also includes gender identity and sexual preference. It's simply one of the many past life memories that's possible. Let's do that. So, past life memory. As more and more souls eagerly join this great transformation in humanity, some of them return quickly from one life to the next. And when that happens, there can be a memory of a past life carried over into the next. So simply stated, if you were a male in your last incarnation and you return quickly to the next life, incarnated in a female body, you might still have a strong identification as a male. Or at the very least, you might express yourself in a more masculine way. And I'm using the words masculine and feminine to reflect the traits that you humans have given them here. And that's only one example, of course, and the least of all of the reasons for gender evolution. I've wondered about that, actually. Past life memory, I mean. Well, where do you think your sense of urgency comes from? That there isn't enough time to get everything done you want to do? Even the fear of dying before you can express your gifts to the world? Wait now, how do you know that? Are you asking me? Well, it clearly resonates with you. You're not alone, you realize. You might carry a sense of urgency about life or a sense of too little time or fear of dying. In other humans, it's an irrational fear of heights or of water. And I call it irrational because there's nothing in this lifetime that explains it. And all that's past life memory. What other examples can you share? There are souls who return to the human realm with a great reluctance or a sadness from a previous life. Perhaps they never realized their goals, or perhaps they suffered a great loss in the past. An unexplained depression or an anxiety, for example. Sometimes it's about human incarnation within a family that doesn't accept you, just as our listener stated in her question. I see. Wait a minute. Uh, Keeper, that's the second time you referred to the listener as female. And I don't recall stating that the listener was female or identified herself as female, although she is. So how did you know? I recognize all souls, Jeff, even in their human form, even the one who called out our liberal bullshit. I know that soul very well, by the way. It's an occupational hazard, you might say. So, when all of these past memories are present, it's the human who has to deal with them, like the sense of urgency that sounded familiar to you. That definitely had a familiar ring to it. So you see how it is, and gender identity is part of that, albeit only a small part, and yes, I thought it was worth mentioning. So, it's something that can't be explained, like a sense of urgency, or depression, or anxiety, that could be the soul's memory. Well, let's say it is. How would that change how a human feels about it? Well, speaking personally about the sense of urgency, if I knew that's what it was, maybe I wouldn't be so hard on myself about it. Aha. Uh -huh. And how would that change things? Hmm. 
knowing that it's not really about me, the human, that is coming from my soul, I might be a bit more compassionate about it. Maybe I just notice it and then let it go, knowing that what I'm feeling is real and yet, well, not real. Wow, Keeper, that's like years of therapy. Well, accepting that which feels like a deviation from the human norm is an authentic feeling that comes from the soul. And that is what you're describing here, isn't it? And yet we always diagnose or judge the human. And always seem to find the human wanting, yes? Or somehow incomplete or inferior. And that brings us back to the idea of those who don't relate to the human form in which they've incarnated. It could also account for the phobias that humans have about those with a different gender story. Those who hold steadfastly to their binary story. It works both ways. I'm wondering what would happen if we introduce ourselves that way. Hi, here's my soul. And yours? <laughs> I mean, Keeper, everyone's going to start changing their Tinder profiles. Oh, you all recognize each other on a soul level, though perhaps not quite as literally as you've described. And yet, yes, there's really the remembering that takes place. Ultimately, there's a much greater purpose for most of the souls that incarnate with the goal of gender, identity, or preference. I just felt it was important to mention memory before we moved on. I'm glad you did. And there's one more conversation here that I've alluded to, and that's the soul contract. Souls will often incarnate in groups, creating a cadence of souls. You mean like a musical cadence? Well, actually, yes. It's intended to do what a cadence does in music. It helps the soul find its place in the greater whole. In these groups, the soul's archetypal role may differ from its individual role, and this also becomes a variable in a soul's purpose. Would that explain why we're drawn to some people more so than others, uh, even strangers? Well, yes, even if you're not part of the cadence or don't play a major role in that other human story this time around. Soul recognition is often so strong, the human form hardly matters. That human experience unfolds according to the age of the souls and their coding, of course. So each incarnation creates a different relationship between souls. So are you talking about soul mates? Well, there's a conversation for another time. If we don't do it that way, we'll never get back on topic. Knowing that a human form is sometimes a limitation or obstacle for soul, that's good enough for now. I also wanted to mention the Bodhisattva vow. It's a Buddhist commitment to continue incarnating in order to help all other sentient beings find their own liberation. And what that means is a soul commits to every other soul's ascension before it realizes its own. Some humans remember those vows and they become part of that human's life purpose or expression for purpose. It becomes part of that human's practice in the world, a protector of the unprotected, a voice for the voiceless, and so on. They are our practice. This and this alone breaks the cycle of ego, by the way, and brings us back to the question of why humans are evolving at such an astonishing rate. So this selflessness, this stewardship for the sake of all beings is what will break our ego cycles. And the answer to the question, why are humans evolving at such an astonishing rate is... More and more souls of all ages are called to journey to the human realm as messengers of an evolution in gender and sexuality and a deeper understanding of what it means to love. Keeper, why is the universe in such a hurry? Because the balance between the lenses is at stake. We haven't talked about the second lens yet, so we must do that soon. That's the science, of course. What I will say is that this accelerated evolution will change your perception of love. It will show you that love is what the human race requires in order to evolve and survive. It will change your population growth. You will all make conscious choices about your gender stories for the sake of humanity and for the planet. In our conversation about separateness, you said something about humanity evolving into one race in the future. I know we haven't got to the second lens yet. I've got to say it has me thinking about those sci-fi movies 
you know, the ones where humans are created in test tubes and have stopped procreating altogether. I mean, is that possible? Oh, no. You die as a species if you stop procreating. Whether or not you'll find an alternative story to procreation, I can only say that there are so many unwanted children on your planet right now, Jeff. You could all take a break from procreation for a while and still not create belonging for all of them. And since you mentioned this, Jeff, this is another way these messengers are showing up in the world. Many of these messengers embrace the family story because it is deeply valued, the similarity that's often overlooked by your need to sort people into separateness, by the way. True. True. There are children we either can't take care of or don't take care of. And no judgment there, just noticing. You know, I'm thinking of a story I heard recently about a gay man who was physically and sexually abused as a child. You know, it's a typical story. Tossed around the foster care system. He was homeless at some point. And then he ends up adopting four high-risk children with his husband. Then they moved to a farm because one of the kids was having emotional issues from fetal alcohol syndrome. And they read that a closer connection to animals and nature might help. Then as if that wasn't enough, he recalled that these kids they've adopted arrived carrying trash bags with whatever belongings they had. And he remembered being sent to foster homes with his own trash bag. So he thought, really? A trash bag? This is the best we can do? Now he and his husband and kids create backpack for kids in foster care. I mean, how do we even talk about this family's impact in our world? Jeff, you've just described the point of this entire conversation and what's possible when you're willing to surrender and write new stories. And using the word surrender in its light aspect rather than its dark, right? Oh, definitely. Is there more to say here, Keeper, before we move on to the environment? There is, and I hesitate rather than overwhelm. So here's what I'll say. There are those humans who advocate for the value of life, and yet once that life comes into your world, they don't seem overly concerned about whether or not it thrives. And actually, there's another energy active on the planet, and it's coming from the second lens. Although it's not related to science directly, it's the energy of the masculine and feminine relationship between humans. It's the disrespect of the mother and all that's holy by the masculine. And understand that it doesn't mean by human men, Human females who operate with masculine energy within their binary story are also disrespecting the mother, whether it's those in government wanting to subjugate and control her, or individuals who are acting out the old story of her demise. We'll talk about birth and death and the feminine at some later point, so I think to mention it is just enough for now. You just keep doing that, don't you? The teaser about another conversation. Well, we can only have one at a time, Jeff. Now, procreation, which is what we were talking about, Procreation will slow down because the planet really can't take much more. There'll always be humans with a binary identity story as more souls incarnate to create new stories. And eventually you will coexist with respect and compassion. Don't get me wrong. Until that happens, it's going to take time for the current structures to break down. Whenever humanity or life itself is at a tipping point, that's when you'll find the greatest resistance. And there's certainly a lot of that right now, isn't there? You bet. So when you realize the tipping point, there will be room for all. Love is beautiful in all its light meanings. And its darkness? Well, humans have a story that there cannot be light without darkness. And while that may be scientifically proven, when it comes to your stories about love, it creates the suffering that many of you endure. So yes, until the story changes, there will always be darkness. These messengers endure unimaginable hardship sometimes. Some don't even survive their message. And maybe some don't even realize that there is a message because they're so deeply rooted in their human lives. I believe that's your concern about humans being a device for the soul again. It's part of the design that you don't walk around proclaiming that you're messengers. Well, most of you don't, at least. Some do, you know, and even when they're not. 
They're merely working on their chief feature or obstacle, which is always attached to ego. It's usually arrogance or martyrdom in the case of self-proclaimed messengers. So how do we know that a messenger is real? I mean, what's the real message here? Hmm. Those are two questions, and that's going to require two answers. How do you know that a messenger is real? In the case of this community of humans, the messengers are very real. The message is often obscured because of soul type and age. These influence human behavior and how the message is expressed. Now, specifically, what's the real message here? There is a spiritual wanting for a greater love. It may be the one thing that saves humanity. And that's really what we're discussing today. And it's why these messengers are so important. So the different types of love all rolled up into one. I mean, we don't even have a word for that. Not yet. You will. I believe it's time to talk about the second lens, the science behind why there are so many messengers coming to Earth right now. So on to the second lens, the science. Jeff, I'll begin with 7.4 billion humans. There are 7.4 billion humans on Earth right now, and that number is expected to become 9 billion by your year 2038. And that actually projects a decline in the human birth rate, by the way, a decline that's expected to continue. Something evolutionary is already happening here. I, I knew the population was around 7 billion, but I didn't know it was slowing down. And that's related to environmental conditions, as well as the changes in gender identification and sexuality that we're experiencing. And let me add a little more science before we draw any conclusions. According to your researchers, humans currently use one and a half Earths to sustain human life. But you've only got one of her, haven't you? Assuming that's rhetorical, we're definitely living beyond the biocapacity of the planet. And I'm curious to know if any country is currently living as if there's only one Earth. Good. Biocapacity, yes. And there are, in fact, several countries. Places like Bangladesh, Uganda, India, all highly populated, I might add. It's interesting to note that if all 7 billion people on Earth lived within that range, humanity could get by with only one Earth. You'd live within her ability to give or at least share her resources with humans. But from there, I regret to say, it grows proportionally more and more out of control. I'm wondering what that lifestyle would be like. I mean, Keeper, we love our progress. And I'll play along for now. So how out of control does it get? Well, take China, for example. We would only require 1.1 planets. Not too bad, really, although far from ideal. If we take Costa Rica, humans would need 1.4 planets. Nepal, nearly two planets. France, 2.5. Canada, 3.8. And then there's a big jump to America at 4.5 planets. And they're not the worst, mind you. Australia uses 4.8 planets worth. United Arab Emirates is the top consumer at 5.4 planets. Now, these figures are only estimates, but I think you get the idea. That really is out of control, isn't it? So progress isn't better, at least not for the planet. That's what I wanted to ask. It's not progress as a concept. It's how you've created progress by sacrificing the planet. That's so out of balance with the natural world. So that leads me to ask, is there any place on Earth where the biocapacity has a reserve? There are many places like that. For example, the Congo, Bolivia, Guyana, Angola, Madagascar, Finland, Argentina. Shall I go on? No, I think you've made your point. And again, I'll, I'll ask what that lifestyle is like. I mean, are we willing to give up things to save the planet? And let's tie this back to our new gender story. Well, I'm getting there. There's one more element to add before I do. You're also experiencing something called crowding stress. That's a term that includes the impact that overcrowding has on equality and on fair distribution of resources, on fight or flight mechanisms and on violence. 
they all go hand in hand with the deficit in biocapacity. Yeah, there's nowhere to run. I mean, violence occurs more frequently. There's a whole deficit mentality and, and definitely more separateness. And all of these imbalances happen in the creature realm as well as in the human realm and crowding stresses at play. In the past, when we talked about how the needs of humans are connected to specific tribal behaviors, this is what we were talking about, right? Yes. And when we talked about young souls in roles of authority, this is what we're talking about. Crowded stress leading to young souls in power greedily grabbing up whatever they can for themselves, even if they say it's in the name of the country or its people. You know, I remember reading about some lab studies done in the 60s with rats. And while you'd be the first to tell me that humans are not lab rats, all creatures share a commonality in their social interactions. Humans are amazed when another sentient being displays human characteristics. You're all endowed with similar characteristics because you're all connected. You just choose to view the characteristics from your egos, or perpetuation of the separation myth, by the way. And that leads me to add a caveat about those early studies of which you spoke, Jeff. Most of the observed crowding behaviors were labeled as aberrant because they were not acceptable human standards leading these scientists to conclude that if a behavior doesn't fit a human definition of standard, it must be aberrant. Yeah, I get it. If it's not like us, it's not normal. And it's tough to accept that it is like us if it doesn't fit our stories. So in the case of the researchers, their beliefs about what was normal human behavior may have skewed the results. Well, it was the 60s. And <laughs> what, they were all high or stoned? And it was all a very new way of thinking, is what I was going to say. Isn't yours a curious perspective, Jeff? What I want to make clear here is there isn't anything aberrant in what I'm saying about this environmental, spiritual, and evolutionary journey of humans. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's brilliant and it's beautiful, no matter how painful or difficult. I get it, yes. Uh, another disclaimer, Keeper. And I wonder why I feel the need to disclaim anything, Jeff. Hmm. The only conclusion I draw is I'm developing a filter when it comes to humans. Sensitivity, you might call it. How very odd. Are you writing a new story, Keeper? Hmm. I guess I just have to be more curious about it, haven't I? Well, at any rate, let's just summarize the second lens and build on what I've said so far before we add evolution to the conversation. Got it. Okay. So we've established that there are too many humans on the planet using far too many resources to support the continuation of our own lives, let alone the life of the planet and other living beings. This is our base data. This is fact. Agreed. Now, in the second lens, when a population is about to go out of control and cannot be supported, survival of the species also intervenes. So we're witnessing an evolutionary birth control movement. Sorry, I just jumped in there. Well, your words, Jeff, not mine. And I prefer to call it an evolutionary shift as a result of the Earth's environmental crisis. This is a survival of the species and different than your Darwin's theory on survival of the fittest, by the way. Let me approach it by allegory. I think we alluded at one time to the fish that grew feet and walked out of the swamp. Yes, and that was a fish keeper. You know, something changed in the environment and needed to adapt. It's not a human. Separate from the fish. Hmm, I see. It's not human. Hmm. Therein lies the sensitive nature of the topic, doesn't it? It's ironic because you're the only creatures on your planet who are capable of comprehending what it means to be in an evolutionary shift. No other creature has that capability. Certainly not the fish. It simply grew feet and walked out of the swamp one day. Its behavior changed. Uh, no need to tweet about that, by the way. But understand that the fish already had to have the elements required to grow feet even before the environment required it to do so, or else its species would have been eradicated. 
And even though you humans have the capacity to notice this, you don't. You choose to call it something other than what it really is, like chaos or madness or aberrance, which is fine as long as we can continue to explore the topic. Many evolutionary changes aren't visible when they first begin. Imagine an entire world of humans exposed to low levels of radiation over an extended period of time. Not that this could ever happen. What I'm hearing you say, Keeper, is that we're already adapting to the radiation around us, even if we don't realize it. And that may eventually trigger an evolutionary change in our bodies. As your human forms continue to be exposed to low doses of radiation, whether from your own cell phones or from events like Fukushima, given time, adaptation will occur, and so will evolution. Of course, if it happens too quickly, you won't survive. I want to reference this back to the documentary I watched on gender identity. There was something about kids getting support from puberty blockers in order to maintain their identity and other things like cross-hormone therapy and, and even surgery. So are these protocols like the radiation you spoke of because at some point the body adapts and with, a, with enough adaptation the human evolves, even if it's just for the sake of that human? So what you're saying is given a little help, the human body will change its gender appearance to suit preferred identity. I'd say that it's all part of the design of the relationship of the lenses. If enough humans desire something, it gets created. I do have to keep coming back to that, Jeff. And here's another example. Did you know that the human brain is getting smaller? Over the last 30,000 or so of your years, you've lost mass about the size of a tennis ball. And what's that about? I mean, are we getting smarter or dumber? Bigger brains aren't necessarily better brains, Jeff. Like some other things that humans equate to size. Big cars and tiny hands, Keeper. Well, actually, Jeff, your brain mass has shrunk because most of you no longer need to focus on survival. Your dependency on that base intelligence is no longer needed. Well, not for all of you, mind you. There are some very large overactive amygdalas in your world even today. There's just no wild boars or falling rocks, at least not in midtown Manhattan or Toronto. And yet you found ways of replacing these things with other fears. And that's essentially my point. Those humans who hold fast to a binary gender story are living in their fears about how the world is changing and they don't like it one bit. Agreed. And uh, is there more to say about the message? Is there anything that might lessen the fear? Well, most who are fearful believe what the first listener believed. What? That it's all bullshit? Liberal bullshit, no less. And we can't change his story. What I'll say about the message for what it's worth is that the humans who are creating this sexual evolution are in service of a purpose in your world that those of you who identify with a binary story have yet to do. And that's to bring humanity together for the sake of its own survival. I remember how activated you were when I told you that there was other life in the universe. Do you remember that? Absolutely. And I'm still activated about it. How do you think humanity will manage with those other life forms if you're unable to manage with your own or other sentient life on your own planet? You're afraid of which bathroom these children who identify as transgender might use in schools because you barely comprehend the distinction between gender identity and sexual preference. How will you handle extraterrestrial life if you can't manage these simple human differences? We're not ready, are we? Well, not yet. And please keep in mind that it might not always be you that the other life form chooses to communicate with. It has to be said, Jeff. <laughs> and that definitely puts a spin on my ego. That was my intention. Uh, not to spin your ego, but to create perspective shift. On the one hand, you're all about progress, brilliantly creative and innovative and at the same time, so primitive in our acceptance of basic human diversity. So we can multitask. Sorry, Keeper, I couldn't resist. 
And you're right, of course. It's just not easy to hear, except that we're so intolerant of what we can't relate to or don't understand. You know, because of the listener's question, I did some of my own research about the young people who are part of this gender evolution. There's surprisingly few statistics because really only a handful of countries have done any studies about them. I did find some info from the US, the UK, and from Thailand. But what I want to say is that when these young people are being rejected by their own families, these kids are leaving home because it's actually safer for them to be on the street, if you can imagine that. Even their shelters aren't safe because of the phobias and bigotry in the world. You know, I recently came across some information that attempted suicide is higher among those kids than any other group of kids, and that's just not okay. I know it's one example, surely, of what's wrong in the world, but I've got to wonder, in spite of everything you said today about them being messengers, what does that say about our future if we can't hear or accept this message? Well, perhaps now you understand why we in the souls realm gather and honor these souls and why the messenger doesn't always survive that message. I do, yes. And I'd like to dedicate this program to all those messengers who didn't survive their message. It's a gesture, I know, and yet I really want us to take a moment and remember them all. These souls accept the risk, and there's always hope that humanity's outrage may one day surpass a soul's willingness to sacrifice itself. I don't know if you can feel it, Jeff. There is a leaning in of energy happening in the soul's realm as you offered that dedication. We are invested in your consciousness. It feels really alive in here right now, actually. And at the same time, I hate to say it, but we're coming to the end of our time, Keeper. Very well. Well, you always ask me to choose a message at the end of our talks. So I have one prepared, Jeff. I was just about to ask. There is an excitement about what's being created here, a deeper understanding of love, and maybe some more to come in the evolution of humans. Souls are eager to be among you and want to be part of that transformation. You do make it sound like a great time to be alive on planet Earth. Well, it is actually. And on a human level, it's more difficult to express. You're living your human lives. You are individuals, and that will always continue. So will being in some sort of struggle or challenge, because that's the human condition. Some humans just want to live their lives, as your listener wrote in. Others want to stand in consciousness about who they are as humans, and then wake up the rest of humanity. And even others are openly exaggerating the separateness because it's in their coding to take their sexuality and gender identity to the extreme. Diversity, not separation. What's needed is a shift in human perception about love and what it means. Recognition that being human is all about love. All the while living a human existence, wanting to be diverse, that's identity, and wanting to belong, that's consciousness. Now here's my point. What if all this judgment and violence in the world was really the infinite asking you, is enough enough? What about now? And what about now? That's a lot to take in. Jeff, what do you suppose happens when you all understand why you're here? I don't know what happens. Sure, actually, I do. Peace. I think we would finally find peace and stop killing one another. Keeper? Uh, Linda, did we lose him? No, Jeff. I, I, no, I, I think he, I'm still here, Jeff. Oh, I thought I lost you for a moment. Did you hear what I said? Yes, I did, Jeff. May I leave you with one last thought for this conversation? Please. I want to leave you and the listeners with an intention that they can reference at a later time. May I be a protector for those without protection? 
a leader for those who journey, and a boat, a bridge, a passage for those desiring the further shore. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. May I be the doctor and the medicine, and may I be the nurse for all sick things in the world until everyone is healed. And with that, I believe we're complete today. Thank you for giving me your consciousness, Jeff and Linda, and all those who are listening. You're welcome. Thank you, Keeper. You'll give me the reference to that before you go, yes? Oh, yes, Jeff. Thank you. And I want to thank our listeners before we sign off today. This is Voice of Evolution Radio. I'm Jeff Hendler, and I've been speaking with the Keeper of Soul's Purpose in the Soul's Waiting Room. Please reach out to us at jeff at voiceofevolutionradio.com or linda at voiceofevolutionradio.com with any questions or comments you have. Until next time, let's all go out and create conversations that awaken, inspire, and activate. That was incredible, Keeper. What is it? It's a bodhisattva prayer from a soul incarnated as the 7th century monk, Shantideva. You can fact check that if you like. 7th century. Uh, I can't help noticing we've been doing this a long time. We're not getting any closer to saving anyone, are we? Now, Jeff, I want you to inspect that question, if you would. What if every light in the human realm saved something or someone? And once again, you haven't imagined the alternative universe in which everyone is happy and everyone is fed. And in keeping with our theme today, everyone loves universally without judgment or exception. Have a little patience, my friend. Patience, huh? My obstacle. And hey, what's a few more centuries? I mean, for humans, it's an eternity. And for the infinite, what? Blink of the infinite eye? Well, assuming there's an eye to blink, Jeff. You're exactly where you all need to be. And there are bodhisattvas everywhere. Yeah, I see that. And, and I know that in my heart. Um, you know, it's the day to day that often just wears the, wears the hope down, you know, so until everyone is healed, got it. Can you say that prayer again once more, just for me? Certainly. May I be a protector to those without protection, a leader for those who journey, and a boat, a bridge, a passage for those desiring the further shore. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. May I be the doctor and the medicine. And may I be the nurse for all sick things in the world.